This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, hey, everybody. It's good to be here. Um, it's been an incredible week. We celebrated 10 years uh, last Sunday, and really just kind of putting that into words is difficult to think of all that God has done in the span of a decade. You know, like I said last week, sometimes that feels really short, and sometimes it feels really long. And there's been some high highs, and there's been some low lows, but God has done so much through this church, and the last week has been to some degree an exemplification of that. We, we this kind of declared the week, Seek Week. We're going to seek God and serve our community, and so last week we met for a few times. We actually got together Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night to pray together, and it was, I, I have to say, it was very sweet. The presence of God was in the house. Our staff brought incredible words and encouragement. If you weren't there, you really did miss out. And then really yesterday, mind-blowing, about 100 people gathering to serve our community, transforming Albemarle Middle School. We mowed about 10 yards around this, the city. We, we fixed breakfast, handed out breakfast, served our community, walked throughout our community, prayed over homes, prayed over people. It was, it was profound. It was a great day. And there's times like that, that we can go through an event and it can be so meaningful and so good for us and we have no idea where it came from. You know, we, we don't even know how we got to the moment that we're in. And really, Serve Day was an idea that came out of a uh, healing place. It's a church in Baton Rouge right outside of uh, kind of the radius of the impacted area from Katrina when New Orleans flooded and so many people left New Orleans and went into those surrounding communities. And Dino Rizzo, who's the pastor of Healing Place, for a period of time they didn't even have church on Sundays. And so what they would do is instead of having church, they would just declare it's a serve day. And they would get together as a church and they would go out in their community to serve each other. And out of that, that identity of we're going to take some days throughout the year and we're going to set it aside to serve our community. What a powerful, powerful thing. And so what can happen just in the context of doing church together is we can actually come to places where we don't know what's going on. We don't even know how we got to now. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens even in our lives like that. I was thinking about just our cultural moment, how we got to where we are right now. You know, so much about how we are and where we're at was informed by things that happened hundreds of years ago. Hundreds of years ago, we entered into the scientific revolution, really in the late 50s like 1500s, and we, we learned things about the world that we live in that we had kind of asserted to be true that we came to see weren't true. We learned that the earth is not the center of the known universe, that our solar system rotates around the sun, and it entered us into a period of well over 100 years that now historians call the Age of Enlightenment, from the late 1600s through the 1800s. 
perhaps an invasion of more information than we've ever known throughout our whole history. And it started this idea that if I have a question, there's got to be an answer to it. And I can find the answer by experimenting. Those might not be scientific experiments. It might be research or asking people, but I can find. And this is so powerful that we still hold this to be true. This is why when y'all get into a debate, you Google the, the question that you're asking. Why? Because we assume that if I have a question, there's got to be an answer for it somewhere. That was really formed in what became known as modernism. That if I want to understand the truth, there's got to be truth out there somewhere. The truth is there. All I have to do is ask the right questions, do the right experiments, and I can come to know the truth. But the problem began to emerge. What if I ask this question and we go through this experiment, but we come to this answer and then this answer and then this answer, and it's not always the same. And so a kind of thought began to emerge. Historically, we now call that postmodernism. Modernism, I can know the truth. Postmodernism, there are many different versions of the truth. I love what Dr. Jordan Peterson, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, said about this. He said, I understand the problem of postmodernism, that there are innumerable possible interpretations for every phenomena and every text, but the postmodern answer to the problem is inaccurate. And what's that answer? That there is no such thing as the truth. All truth is subjective. There's no order. There's no absolutes. It's now not the truth. It's my truth. And this way of thinking invaded philosophy and academia and even architecture. This is a picture of the Wexner Center for the Arts on the campus of Ohio State University. It is deemed to be the very first postmodern building in the world. Modern architecture, everything has a purpose. Everything is symmetrical. So what does that mean for postmodern? Everything is thrown out the window. Peter Eisenman, who is the architect who designed this building, was one of the pioneers in postmodern architectural thought. The walls inside this are not parallel. There are stairways going nowhere. There are doors that don't even open. There's a famous story about this building. A theologian is showing up. He's actually going to be debating on the campus of Ohio State against an atheist. And the guy who's dropping him off, the taxi driver, is actually a student at Ohio State. And he said, did you know that this is the first postmodern building ever built? All the rules were thrown out. Walls are not parallel. Staircases going nowhere. It's a phenomenon. It's a genius work of architectural design. To which the theologian responded back, well, I hope they didn't make the foundation postmodern. Because there are some things you can mess with, 
But there's some things you can't, and you can't mess with the foundation. Foundations matter. Foundations matter. There are a lot of ideas in our world floating around about what's true, what's right, and how do you build your life. And the ideas you knowingly or unknowingly accept create your foundation. Come to see a few things about foundations that I just want to say as we get started. Number one, some of us are unaware of our foundations. We do not know why we think the way that we think. Some of us have asserted that that's my truth. That's the way I see the world. We don't understand the background of how you get to a posture of saying that's my truth. We don't know the debate between relative truth and absolute truth. We're living from a perspective that we don't even understand. Some of us will argue about politics and the only reason we argue about it is because our parents argued about it before us. We don't even know why we believe what we believe. Number two, some of us have cracked or damaged or neglected foundations. The foundations of our life, we can feel them cracking beneath our feet. There was a time it was strong. There was a time we were building on it and, 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 and it felt firm, but now it's not I walked away from doing what I know I should. I stopped doing the right things. This is exemplified in marriage. Two people get married because they enter into a relationship where they pursue each other. I'm interested. I want to know more. So what do we do? We go out to eat. and We keep learning and growing in knowledge of that person. I, I love you. All that I've learned, it's just been so good. I love you. But you know what the common story is? That once that marriage certificate is signed and those rings are on the finger, we stop doing that. And we get busy doing life. And maybe it's raising kids or working at your job. And this is why the story of the kids move out, you're sitting across the table from somebody and you, you look at them one day and go, I don't even know you. Why? Because all the work you've done to build the foundation, you stop doing it. And now that foundation is broken and cracked. For some of us, that's how our lives feel. And then three, some of our foundations are too small for the life we're trying to build. It has amazed me that the same story emerges over and over, season after season. The young person who pursued a life of influence and fame that found it and was not able to stand under the weight of the scrutiny that comes with that many eyes on them. Some of us are trying to build lives that our foundations cannot support. Can the integrity of your soul support the weight of your life? This is an important question and a question that you need to be asking about what you're trying to build with your life. And it all comes back to the foundation. 
what is the foundation? Well, for a structure, many of us are familiar with that. We know what that looks like when we're talking about structures. It's the, the, the foundation. It's what everything is built into and on top of. There are foundational principles by which we build with. And there are foundations that we anchor into beneath us. I'm going to give you two things that our foundations are. Number one, our foundations are the perspectives on which we stand. It's how I see the world. It's how I see things. This is how I understand it. But that's not the only thing that should be a foundation. If you look around the world that we live in, should flag to you that many people are only living with this as their foundation. They are only living with, well, that's how I see things. Foundations are the perspectives on which we stand, and everybody stands from where they see. But they're also, number two, the principles by which we live. This is why when it comes to perspectives, this is a half answer of the truth. This is why postmodernism does not have a full answer to the truth. What is a perspective? It's just simply the way I see things. I want to recreate something for you that will help you. Because in our world, we have adopted a phrase that is not accurate. This is my truth. No, I'm sorry. That is not your truth. That is your perspective. And your perspective is not always true. Have you ever seen something incorrectly? Have you? Do you remember a time in your life that you understood something to be, but when you came to see it, you came to understand that my understanding was flawed? Why would you stand in your life solely on your perspectives when by all of our own accounts, our perspectives are already flawed? If your understanding is not complete, your perspectives are flawed. Which means, and I hate to tell you this, there is nothing in your life, even your own self, that you understand completely. How many of y'all get surprised by yourself every once in a while? I didn't know I could say that, right? If that's the truth, and it is the truth, our experience brings huge amounts of validity to that's the truth. I don't see everything correctly. This is why I need principles, not just perspectives. If all I have is principles without perspectives, this should help you understand the world. What that leads to is living from a place of profound arrogance. 
This is why we need principles. Principles are determining factors outside of my perspectives. Because this is a sincere truth. We all need something from without to inform what's happening within. I need something on the outside of me to make sense of what's happening on the inside of me because I am left with a big, huge gap in my understanding. I'll give you an example of that. Financial resources. Many of us understand what we have in the bank to be what we earned. It is mine. And therefore, since it is mine, it is mine to do with as I wish. But as a believer, I'm faced with the principle. And the principle is that everything I have, I've been given. Everything I have, I've been given. And everything I've been given, I've been given for a purpose. God is not arbitrary. He doesn't make mistakes. When God blesses me, he blesses me to be a blessing. That's the principle. And so what happens? I no longer view my bank account as this is my money. It's God's money. He gave it to me. He gave me the job. He gave me the skills. He gave me the wisdom. He gave me the strength. He gave me the ability to do what I've done. It's his money. And so since it's his money, instead of living by my own perspective, I live by the principle. God, what do you want me to do with it? I want you to give. Every time you experience increase, that we're going to start at 10%, give it away. Give it to the church. Give it to people who are in need. Above that 10%, there should be things where you're, I'm, I'm helping this, I'm doing this, I'm doing Baseline, 10% generosity. This is why we call it a tithe. What happens? If I understand my perspective is this is my money, but my principle is this is from God, that humbles my perspective. Our principles should consistently humble our perspectives. Consistently. Our principles should be causing us to come back and say, what? I didn't know I saw that wrong. I know that I feel that. I try to, I, I'm trying to get outside of that, but that's how I see. Because if you have the wrong perspectives, you have the wrong principles, you're headed towards a disaster. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Bible records the longest continual teaching of Jesus in the Scriptures. It's recorded in two place, places. It's here in Matthew, and then it's in Luke. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is confronting our perspectives. It's as if he knows that we are prone to see things the wrong way. And when we see it the wrong way, we craft the wrong principle by which to live. And throughout this sermon, he continues You've heard it, but I say. You've heard it, but I say. Matthew 5, 21, 22. You have heard that your ancestors were told. 
you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. Going all the way back to the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. What's he saying? You've heard it said that if you murder, you'll be judged by God. But I'm saying to you, if you hate somebody, you already murdered them in your heart. Oh, well, that's a different principle by which to live. 27, 28. You've heard the commandment says you must not commit adultery. Again, all the way back to the foundational understanding of the law, to the Ten Commandments. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's he saying? You have this principle based on what you've understood, and you were wrong. If you let lust live in your heart, you've already committed the sin. It's already done. That's the principle. Continues, Matthew 5, 43, 44. You've heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies. What's he saying? I mean, you've heard it, that it's okay to hate somebody, but I'm telling you that the way forward is love. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rush destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. What's he confronting? The common perspective that when I experience financial increase, my job is to invest it and make more money. Why? Because more of that, I'm going to store up. I'm going to get things. I'm going to get investments. I'm going to make more. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what he's saying is that there's a better way than just that. Store up your treasures in heaven. You need an eternal investment strategy. Why? And he goes on to clarify it. Because wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. What he's saying is, I don't want you to be invested into this world so you don't want to go to heaven. And there's too many people who are trying to build lives. They're so amazing and articulate and wonderful on this earth that they don't have an investment strategy that heads towards eternity. Matthew 7. The golden rule, Matthew 7, 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. You've understood people are assets to be manipulated and managed to get whatever you feel like you're supposed to get out of this life. But I'm telling you that that's not the truth. You need to treat people with love and kindness and grace in a manner that you would want. That's the principle. All throughout this, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say, confronting their perspective and giving them a broader new principle. And as he wraps it up in Matthew 7, he tells this story. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man 
who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew, next slide, blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. I want to make four simple observations about this story that Jesus tells to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe if we can listen to what God's trying to say to us today, God can do something in our hearts. Number one, how we respond to what we know, what we do with it, matters more than what we know. Which flies in the face of how some of us who grew up in church understood discipleship. Because we understood discipleship to be like you got to go to Sunday school and learn lessons and memorize facts. And know. And it's not true. The most mature, devoted followers of Jesus are doing a lot with what they know. They're not the people who know a lot and aren't doing anything with it. Sometimes you got to take a step back and ask the question, what really matters more? The good things that I try to do for God or just simply being obedient? There's a moment in 1 Samuel 15 where King Saul, this is when God is over King Saul. This is the moment that pushes it over the edge with him. He's waiting on the prophet to come. He knows that they need to make sacrifices to honor God. The prophet has not showed up yet. And you know what he does? He tries to do a good thing that God told him not to do. So he goes ahead before the prophet shows up, gets the sacrifices, prepares them, makes them, and offers them to God. And the prophet shows up. What did you do? You weren't supposed to do that. That's a good thing, though. I mean, we're honoring God. You weren't supposed to. It wasn't your job. And he looks at Saul, and he says what I think God would say to us many times. 1 Samuel 15, 22. God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants you to obey him. And if you're trying to argue with God and saying, yeah, I know I'm not doing that, but look at all these good things that I'm doing. You've missed the point. God wants you to be obedient. He wants to be able to lay down a principle and trust that you're going to receive it and obey it and put it into practice. To become faithful in your discipline to obey him. Do you know what the earlier followers of Christ were called? They were called disciples. Why? Because they put into practice the teachings of God. They were disciples of Jesus because they put into practice the teachings of Jesus. The root word of disciple is the word discipline. Discipline. And some of y'all need to hear this when it comes to your life. Discipline will take you places motivation and giftedness cannot. 
And what we need in our life is a cultivation of that discipline. Jesus is saying, listen, I don't care what you know. Both of these people knew the teachings of Jesus. Only one was doing it. It matters more what you're doing with what you know than what you know. Number two, practice matters more than performance. Some of us struggle with this because we feel like every day people's eyes are on us. I gotta wake up and look right. I gotta post the right things on social media. I've gotta always have the right answers. I gotta look like my life is all together. And what we're really doing is performing. And the thing is, is that if it's a performance and you blow it, you have lost the value of that moment. But when we start to see that everything is practice, we start to realize that every moment is really an invitation to a new discipline. I coached football for a number of years. It was actually fun because when I moved back to plant, one of the kids that I coached was now a local coach again. It's kind of fun. Got invited out, got to coach even for a few years then just as a helper. With football, you, you practice a lot. You, you have a lot of practices, not a lot of games. And you can take that mindset that we're, we're, we're practicing and then we're performing. But a good coach knows that even a game is practice for the next game. It's all practice. It's all everything in your life. You get in a conflict with your spouse, you practice it for the next one. You have a bad day and you don't handle it real well, you're practicing for the next bad day. Everything is practice. Notice what Jesus said in the text. If you hear these words of mine, and you put them into practice. Practice, which I love, because that means that God's not expecting you to get it perfect. You know what you're practicing, you have not perfected. So if Jesus says you're gonna put this into practice, that means that for some of us, I gotta learn how to fight this inward battle with lust. Don't wanna always see a pretty girl and have a negative thought. I gotta fight that fight. Well, I failed that one, but I'm gonna learn. How did I fail? What can I do to get better? For some of us, if somebody does us a little bit wrong, we hate them. And Jesus, no, you're murdering them. I gotta fight the fight to love people even when they've done me wrong. Practice, practice. I've come to see this. Everyone is learning from someone. Who are you learning from? We're all learning how to do life from somebody. Is it a YouTube channel? Is it a social influencer? Is it your mom, your dad, a mentor? Because in this story, Jesus makes it really clear that the person we're supposed to be learning from is him. Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will build a house that can stand. Practice matters more than performance. Number three, everyone works to build their life, but some lives will collapse. Some lives will collapse. Some of y'all are living through a collapse. Your life did exactly what Jesus prophesied it would do in Matthew 7. Built on the wrong foundation, it will collapse. Did you notice, though, what he said? That both builders did the effort of building. They both built a house. 
They both went out and procured the resources, brought them back in, went through the effort. They built the walls. They built the roofs. But only one built something that lasted. Here's the truth about life. Life is always going to require effort. You can decide tomorrow, I ain't going to work. I'm going to stay in my pajamas all day. But you're still going to have things you got to do. There's always going to be work. And if you work at the wrong things, predictably, your life is going to collapse. You try to control everyone and everything around you, predictably, life is going to collapse. You keep telling the world and the people in your life that they owe you something, that they're not giving you what you deserve, predictably, your life is going to collapse. And if you look squarely into the heart of God and you say, I'm not going to do what you told me to do, predictably, your life Life is going to collapse. Because number four, we will all be forced to weather storms. We will all. Every person in this room at some point is going to weather a storm. It's not a matter of if a storm is coming. It's when. When is the storm coming? It's not a matter of if plain or problems and pain are not avoidable. They're not avoidable. In many regards, they are inevitable. Pain is coming. Problems are coming. Too many of us get caught off guard emotionally when they happen. Jesus predicted it prophetically. In John 16, while you are in this world, you will have to suffer. They're coming. And what's unique about this parable is in this parable, Jesus equates our problems and our pains with storms. Did you notice that? That we'll go through storms. Storms are coming for all of us. For every person in this room, there are storms coming. I love a good thunderstorm. I love it. I go sit out on the front porch and watch it roll through. Because I've been through enough of them, I can predict what it's going to be like. But my kids, my kids hate a thunderstorm. Anybody there? Anybody got a dog that doesn't like a thunderstorm? Why? Because they're not mature enough to know what's going to happen. There's different kinds of storms that we face in our life. There's some storms that we can forecast. You can forecast that there's a storm. Some of us are living in a way that we are overtly disobeying the heart of God. God has said, no, don't do that. Don't hang out with that person. I don't want you to do that. And we keep doing it. And we know that we're living in a way that's inviting the discipline of God. You can forecast it moving forward. There is a storm coming. Sometimes, y'all ever heard a meteorologist say that the, there's conditions that are favorable to producing a storm. In other words, there's not a weather front coming through, 
But we know based on the barometer and the dew point, the amount of moisture in there, there's the condition that's favorable for a storm being produced. Some of y'all need to know that there's times in our lives that we create conditions that are favorable for storm. I've watched too many parents do this for their teenagers. As their teenagers begin to grow and mature, they start giving them freedom and responsibility that is outside the boundaries of their maturity. And what they're doing is creating a climate where a storm can blow in. You keep hanging out with the wrong people. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. It's a condition that's favorable for a storm. You keep doing the things that you know God in his wisdom has said, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Conditions are favorable for a storm. Sometimes there are external factors. External factors when it comes to the storms in our lives. You know that in the upper atmosphere, there's something called the jet stream blows weather throughout the United States. And every once in a while, there'll be an effect in the jet stream where it'll blow air north and then it'll drop it way south. The storms in the path of the jet stream are more inclined to get severe storms. They didn't do anything, just happened to be in the wrong place. As the conditions changed around, y'all listen to me, there's some of you that went through storms that you didn't create for yourself. Especially as children. Some of you had things that happened to you that no child should have ever had to live through. You didn't create that storm. You didn't make, it happened to you. Sometimes there are external factors when it comes to the storm. There's some of the storms we go through are mild storms. They're mild. They're not severe. But they're warning signs. It's as if God's saying to you, you need, you need to get that right. I see that pride. I see that arrogance. If you don't get that in check, there's something that's coming later on. And that's the storm Jesus is talking about, severe storm. The wind and the waves come and they pound against what's been built and they test it. And as Jesus said, one lasted, one didn't. But please hear what I'm about to say. If you try to serve God long enough, there is a perfect storm that's coming. Meteorologists describe perfect storms as the convergence of all the weaknesses of a particular geographic area. It can be two fronts converging over the ocean. It can be a lot of different things for different areas. But I want you to understand you have an enemy that knows your weaknesses. And if it takes the right thing at the right time with the right person, you need to know it's coming. There's a perfect storm. We're all going to face storms in life. The question is not if. The question is is when. Some of us might be coming out of a storm right now. We feel the wind dying down. And the rain's dying down. Seems to be calming. Some of us might be going back into a storm. But whether or not you're in a storm 
or you're getting ready to go in one. Here's the question that will matter. What will what you've built be strong enough to last the coming storm? Will what you've built in life be strong enough to last the coming storm? This is my prayer for you today, that we collectively build a stronger foundation. God has already given you the playbook. He did it right there in Matthew chapter 7. Look at what he said, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. You're going to do in life, you're going to do the work of building something. I don't want you to waste your life building something that comes crashing down. You know the building I showed you earlier, the Wexner Center for Arts, it opened three years later, it was shut down. Because the roof wouldn't work. It leaked. The foundation was broke. It took five years to repair that building to open it up again. Five years. Because there are some principles you can't change if you're going to build a life. And it's as if there with, with Jesus, as he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, it's as, as if Jesus is looking at you. And all he's saying is, build your life on me. Stop trying to build your life about what you think is right and the way you want to go. Build your life on me. Why build your life on Jesus? Because he's never failed. He's never failed. And he won't fail you. The truth is, you will fail you. The people you try to listen to will fail you. This is why Jesus said, listen to me. Put into practice my teachings. Build your life on me. I won't fail you. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.